we don't actually even see what we're being asked to do yet. I don't think. We being the environmental movement. I don't think we fully understand what is seen as problematic about the way we are now and what is problematic about the way we are now. Um, and I think that a lot of those things that are problematic are really deeply entrenched with the structure of, of how we exist. Welcome to Shades of Green, a podcast series exploring environmental justice here on unceded Mi'kmaq territory. I'm your host, Sadie Beaton. In this episode, we're going to build on some of the questions we've been asking in earlier episodes to explore how environmental organizations are grappling with environmental justice, including questions around partnerships, diversity, and representation from the folks most impacted by environmental issues. We're going to be asking how white folks in these movements can make space to allow for the kinds of relationships we need to build across difference that will help us build a just future together. Like we've done in other episodes, I want to start with an invitation to reflect on territory. For me, this means pausing to really think about what it means to be living and working here on unceded Mi'kmaq territory. These lands have been gently cared for since time immemorial by Mi'kmaq people. They offered help and healing to the first European travelers, and offered to teach them how to live in peace here. Eventually, they signed treaties of peace and friendship, which remain the law of the land. Mi'kmaq rights holder Barbara Lowe is going to give us a little something to think about in terms of this treaty relationship as we settle in. Probably here in Mi'kmaq, I wouldn't so much say that the land is stolen so much as it's misappropriated here, because our treaty is about land sharing, right? Mm -hmm. It really is sharing. So we by no means, and never have, and probably never will, Ask the settlers to leave. Although the other day, you know, they're talking about deporting families and stuff. And I'm like, deport the deporters. Mm -hmm. Because that's not what we're about, right? Mm -hmm. That's not what we're about. We, As I I say, we have always welcomed people here, even the uninvited. Mm -hmm. And we always will. Because that's what we're about. Because we actually value true peace and true friendship. Mm -hmm. And when we say peace, again, it's not the absence of war. It's um, the existence of good living for everyone. That's when there's peace. Mm -hmm. When everyone's fed, when everyone is comforted and comfortable, that is peace. Because it's not, we don't have a right, even as Olnu in these lands, it's not our place to say what can and cannot live here or who can and cannot live here but it is uh, our place to instruct gently on how to live here if you are gonna Mm -hmm. but you know listening is key (laughs) (laughs) you know not just hearing but listening like bringing it in taking it in and taking it on board right Mm -hmm. which has not happened which is why we have now the environmental movement turning around on us and going wait a minute right Let's continue to keep this treaty relationship in mind as we delve in, especially that vision of peace at the heart of the treaties, and what that might have to do with us really, really listening. Grassroots advocates in environmental justice movements have repeatedly called on environmental organizations, or ENGOs, to address environmental racism, elitism in the movement, and lack of diverse representation on our staff and boards. This episode is going to explore this call 
and some of the ways that the environmental movement has and hasn't listened and responded here in Mi'kma'ki. Before we dig in, I just got to say that this episode has been really challenging for me to make. I've been working with an environmental organization called Ecology Action Center, or EAC, for nearly 15 years. I love many of the people who are part of this ENGO and so much of the work we do. When it comes to environmental justice, we're in a place of early learning at EAC, and it's difficult to share this learning journey because it's not just about vision and value statements or committees or even campaigns. It's personal, it's messy, and we're all trying to figure out what it means for us in our own ways. It can be kind of scary to fumble and to learn in public through these inevitable mistakes, and that's something I've definitely been feeling even in the process of just making these podcasts. Admitting that we don't quite know what we're doing is in tension with the whole image ENGOs tend to project as experts, you know? That's a stance that works really well in our media communications, in in the halls of power at meetings, uh, in grant applications, and it's been an effective way to bring our issues across. Sharing our foibles is not yet a thing most of us are comfortable with, and we're not so sure if our members, our funders, or our partners want to hear it either. And Because of how deeply rooted and complicated it all is, conversations about race and justice can get pretty polarizing. It usually activates some white fragility too, especially when we say white fragility, which is going to happen quite a few times in this episode. But I'm also learning that this discomfort is healthy. It's pushing us to heal our broken relationships across difference. It's pushing us to heal ourselves so our work can be more relevant and powerful. And it's also helped me to remind myself that the awkwardness I feel in this work is nothing compared to the oppression felt by folks experiencing environmental injustices. Also, I think there's lots of value in sharing these imperfect processes. So many of us in our white-dominated institutions and movements are asking questions about our role in undoing the oppressive systems that are destroying our environment and our communities. We've often relied on others to educate us about these things, and so I think it's really important that we don't continue this journey in isolation. How do we begin to push ourselves out of our comfort zone, out of the bubble that is the mainstream environmental movement? How do we begin to engage in this kind of reflection, learning, and sharing when we already feel so stretched in our work? How do we breathe through our own white fragility, both personally and collectively, and name it when it's impeding our ability to build trust and to engage in relationships across difference? Last year I talked with Maggie Burns, who had served as Managing Director at Ecology Action Center where I work between 2005 and 2017. She was in the final weeks of her position and I wanted to learn a little more about EAC's evolving identity and relationship with justice before she left. Here she is briefly describing the inception of EAC, which started the same year as Greenpeace, back in 1971. The social aspect of of environmental issues was always a component of EAC's thinking. So there is a kind of environmentalism that's about the purity and protection of nature, and that's an important part of the work. But for EAC, it always seemed to include how do we as humans thrive within that, within a protected and respected natural world. So in 1971, when the EAC started, It originated from a self-directed course at Dalhousie that was titled Living Ecology. So they um, expressed an interest in looking at the intersection between 
the thinking around ecology, so those real principles of nature and, um, and ecological thinking, and how that plays out in our daily lives and how we can live that. Kind of like the question of how we as human beings thrive within a protected and respected natural world. It reminds me a little bit of the definition of peace that Barbara Lowe was invoking earlier in the episode, that peace we were all promised in the treaties. I can also hear a more colonial idea around nature's purity embedded in there too. That makes me curious about what has and hasn't changed for us in our movements and in our organization over the last nearly 50 years. Last year I asked Randolph Haluza Delay what engagement around environmental justice has looked like on the ground for ENGOs in Canada. He's a sociologist and an environmental justice researcher at King's College in Edmonton. Because I kept hearing people say, well, the Canadian environmental movement, it, even the mainstream groups, they are paying attention to environmental justice. They are talking about it. And I'm like, you know, I don't think that's true. Well, as a social scientist, the only way you can really support that is by doing the research. And so we took a small but random sample of the Canadian Environmental Network, the organizations that are members of it, and we used a number of indicators to look at what do they present on their website. When they talk about sustainability, do they talk about gender? Do they talk about disability? Do they talk about First Nations? Do they talk about uh, multiculturalism? Things like that. And how prominent are any of these what I call social inclusion frames or environmental justice frames? In, on their websites. And, and for environmental organizations, the website is the only place you have full control over the message that you're presenting to the public. You know, if you're talking to the media, if you're putting out a press release, if you're doing a, an, a direct action kind of thing, other people are then interpreting or editing your work. But on your website, you have full control of your message. So what our research showed is that very, very, very few of the members of the Canadian Environmental Network are including any of these things that social development activists are far more concerned about, like multiculturalism or racism and things like that. Um, so there's two things that I think the environmental movement needs to pay attention to. Really honest participation with other types of organizations like First Nations, and secondly, to really make it justice a, a much more prominent theme on what they're communicating about sustainability and the sort of future that we want. I can feel my own fragility here because I'm like, come on, our website is super out of date. We're in the midst of creating a communication strategy that's going to better bring across the justice pieces in our work. You know, but what Randolph's study showed is pretty clear. Most environmental organizations are not communicating consistently and clearly about justice. Randolph has also researched the distinction between surface partnerships and more genuine relationships across difference in the environmental movement, particularly with Indigenous communities. The environmental movement, unfortunately, doesn't have a great track record of long-term partnerships with First Nations. It's tended to be individual activists doing that, uh, and so it waxes and wanes a bit. But the hope is that they can partner in a more profound way. And, and what I mean by that is that uh, when environmental groups and First Nations have partnered, sometimes governments and others have kind of been able to do a divide and conquer and focus on the land protection sorts of issues that environmentalists are really concerned about and not focused on the things like treaty rights and how that relates to the land and making a living off the land and you know having this 
sort of sustainable livelihoods focus that Aboriginal peoples in Canada want. Um, and so environmentalists need to pay attention to issues like treaty rights uh, and not just do it because it's a convenient way of fighting against pipelines or oil sands or anything like that. They need to really, really, really be partners with First Nations for a really effective environmental justice movement in that area. I like how Randolph explains the difference between the kind of alliances that you see happen completely or mostly on the terms of the environmental movement, like protected area or pipeline fights, and then the more reciprocal partnerships with Indigenous communities that work to engage around the underlying justice issues that they articulate, like land dispossession and dishonored treaties. Indigenous climate activist Ariel Deranger from Athabasca Chippewan First Nation has thought a lot about the difference between these kinds of relationships in our movements. She sees the kind of reciprocal partnerships that Randolph just introduced as central to decolonizing our environmental movements. And this involves changing how we relate both to the land and to one another. Decolonization in the environmental movement is super critical because the root of environmental movements is really, it was spearheaded by middle-class white affluent communities. And it was a way to safeguard the environment for their enjoyment. Yeah, of course, they wanted to connect and enjoy the land in its, in its unimpacted, beautiful, natural state, but they also wanted to protect it, not just from, from the big bad things that were happening, whether it's forestry or diamonds or oil and gas and fossil fuels. Um, they were also wanting to protect it from people. And in the original sort of iterations of the environmental movement, it actually led to the forced removal of indigenous communities from their territories. And so when we talk about decolonization, and in particular the, the respect for the rights of indigenous peoples who have maintained that deep connection to land and to place, um, we need to really be talking about decolonizing the movement that if we're really talking about protecting land, it's protecting not just the land, but it's protecting the people whose land, whose rights, cultures, and identities are a part of that. And that we have to move that model of protecting the land as something um, separate from us as humanity to protecting the land as a part of us as humanity. I've also had the privilege of learning from Mi'kmaq rights holder and activist Barbara Lowe about the need for this shift. She worked with Greenpeace back in the 1990s and was very aware of the disconnect. You know, we get people, they're all romantic, and they're like, what's your native name, right? And I'm like, Barbara Lowe, right? At Greenpeace, I don't know how many, like, flying hawks there were and soaring eagle and rainbow and S, right? I'm Indigenous and my name's Barbara. (laughs) (laughs) Right? You know, it's upsetting, um, like, and even, of course, and also being a light-skinned Indigenous person, too, right? I get to hear what settlers say about us when they think we're not around. That's why I always call myself an under undercover Mi'kmaq, right? And then when you speak up and say, well, actually, I'm Mi'kmaq, they'll be like, you're not. Even within the environmental movement, a great many settlers do not think that we have any reasonable capacity to do anything. And the, it's white saviorism too, right? The concept of taking lead from us, like getting behind us, is too much. And ultimately, environmental groups are settlers getting in front of indigenous people instead of getting behind us. Which is what we've been saying all along. Like, stay with us. We got treaty. If you stay with us, everything will be fine. It's a trump card, right? 
And now, and again, when I speak of treaty, I'm talking about our treaties here on the East Coast because the peace and friendship treaties are very different uh, arrangements than the ones inland, the numbered treaties. Barbara's concise definition of white saviorism in the environmental movement has really stuck with me. Errol Duranger has lots to say about this phenomenon too, just part of the poor track record we see when it comes to environmental organizations engaging with Indigenous communities. I found it very troubling when you have these really strong organizations that have been able to um, raise massive funds into the millions of dollars to run these massive campaigns to protect the environment. But again, they're still utilizing these models of protecting the environment as an externality. Yes, of course, it's good that we had environmental movements pushing towards stopping these projects from happening and changing the minds of government to, to adopt better practices or stop certain projects. But the reality is, is that when they did that and they asserted themselves as the voice for those places, they actually invisibilized further the voices of Indigenous communities on the ground that may have, in fact, been fighting for recognition over the control um, and connection to those places for, in many cases, sometimes decades, if not centuries before that. I mean, in, let's be honest. I mean, Indigenous communities have been fighting for recognition and control of their lands and territories since colonization. And so you end up with these white, middle-class, affluent groups coming in and being like, we actually know what's right for the land. And when they say it, suddenly, you know, governments, corporations are listening to them. And it's actually just duplicating and supporting models of white supremacy and further um, marginalizing the already marginalized. And then we also put, they were putting a lot of, they are, and they still are, putting a lot of resources into changing the minds of corporations and government so how do we change the minds of those in power and for me it's like that is not a decolonial model at all a decolonial model would be looking to empower those that have been disempowered to take back their roles as leaders to demand the recognition that they deserve so that they can change the system not individual projects but to change the system to include a broader recognition and inclusion of indigenous peoples who have a vested interest in maintaining uh, and preserving the critical ecosystems that their cultures rely on. But when you add an element of decolonization into the environmental movement, you're adding to it. You're not subtracting and replacing another part of that movement. You're adding a new element of power. You're adding the voices of the marginalized. You're adding the power of their, their rights that are recognized, again, regionally, nationally, internationally. You're diversifying that voice and that power dynamic. I feel like Ariel is really underlining how the environmental movement continues to erase, or tokenize at best, the Indigenous voices that are most connected to these lands. I also love how she challenges us to imagine what it would really look like to listen and to empower these voices. As Barbara Lowe is going to remind us, the same tokenizing approach happens internally in our organizations too. Like, as you know, I worked with Greenpeace Canada for several years and, you know, I was surrounded by a lot of uh, Indigenous iconography, right? Like an Indigenous images and such, but I was the only Indigenous person in the organization and I had to deal with microaggressions on a daily basis almost, right? Or token tokenism all the time. And I'll remember one day a, a young woman coming up to me named Jenny and she was just like, someone told me that you're like a Native American. And I said... 
well, actually, I'm Mi'kmaq, yes. And she was, and she goes, oh my God, that's so exciting. You know, I've always wanted to be a Native American. And I mean, yes, you laugh and it is, but it's, yeah, like, I mean, I don't know what to say to that. Like she was, and she was thrilled, right? It was like, you know, and it's like, well, I don't know. It's not like being the apple picking princess or something. It's not just something you can, you can, you know, get to be like that, right? right. So that kind of stuff, right? And then after I'd been there about five or six years, finally there was, there was two more indigenous people that actually came on to canvas in Toronto. And so we actually started uh, Persons of Colour and Indigenous Caucus so that we could take our concerns, you know, to talk in a safe, like never, never confuse sanctuary with segregation because marginalized groups need sanctuary from the dominant culture at any given time. So they allowed us that group and we would report back, but nothing would really change, right? Again, it was all window dressing and talk. We might feel like we're all on the same page in our organizations fighting the good fight together, but folks who aren't protected by white privilege are also dealing with all of these other layers of oppression, not only in the outside world, but inside of our organizations too. And as Barbara described, even when it's named, it seems our organizations sometimes still can't hear it. Ariel Deranger is going to pick up again where Barbara left off, describing what it can look like when environmentalists don't listen to and genuinely engage with Indigenous folks when building campaigns. You're asking us in the 11th hour, and that's exactly what's been happening with resource extraction. The, the, the licenses have been, you know, given out to these companies. They submit their review process, and in the 11th hour of the review process, the companies and the government go, so this is our plan, so what do you think? And if we go, well, we don't like this, and they're like, well, we've already spent billions of dollars. Like, you, you know, what can we do to, to make you happy? Can we just give you money? And it turns into a bribery conversation rather than a real conversation about trying to obtain real consultation or consent from Indigenous communities. And that's the exact model that a lot of the environmental uh, groups have been running with, which is coming to communities in the 11th hour with a fully formed campaign and being like, this is really good for you. Do you want to be, be a part of it? And if a community says, well, you know, it would be nice if we could do this. Well, we've already campaigns ready to launch we just need to know if you want to be a part of it or not and if they can't find someone from that community they'll keep going until they find another voice and that to me is really problematic is we need to learn how to include different knowledge systems different ways of looking at the environmental movement and what environmental justice is and we need to be implementing that decolonial framework into our work so that we avoid this continuation of leaving indigenous communities to the 11th hour or the marginalized community it doesn't even have to be indigenous because it's not just something that happens to indigenous communities. And we need to be redirecting those resources away from trying to change the minds of political parties or those that already have the power to really building the capacity of those that have been disempowered for so long to recognize that they don't just have the connection to the land, but that there are mechanisms and laws in place both regionally, nationally, and internationally to uphold them, to be able to have a voice. How that's gone in and happened within the, the ENGO movement has not been smooth and, and lovely. Um, it took a moment like Standing Rock for the environmental movement to really get that Indigenous communities could build campaigns from the grassroots that had a real long-lasting impact. I think previous to that moment, 
there was real hesitancy to want to have communities lead the movement or the campaign and lead the narrative and lead the negotiation processes because there were many cases I heard some pretty racist comments come from folks in the NGOs. Well, we don't, we can't find anyone who can articulate this conversation and the government doesn't know how to talk to these communities. I'm just like, wow, it's 2016, 2017. Are we really still having these conversations where white folks don't know how to talk to native folks? (laughs) It's super problematic. The way that Ariel lays out the parallel approaches of resource extraction companies and environmental organizations when engaging Indigenous communities really gave me pause, especially reflecting about how in our movements we have sometimes called what Ariel is describing there as part of relationship building. I also want to bring in the voice of Dr. Carolyn Finney. She's a writer and cultural geographer working in the University of Kentucky. She's focused a lot of her work on the insights of black folks in the U.S. as they relate to their experiences of wild spaces. She's got a lot of insight when it comes to the reasons why ENGOs haven't had the best luck engaging with black communities. Think about the outdoors and you think about all the government agencies that are tasked with the responsibility of caring for those spaces so that we can be out there how we might like to be out there. Historically, they don't have a pristine record, okay? And in part, it's not entirely their fault. They don't have a pristine record because they're, they're, the people who work there are part of the history up here. I mean, they're, they're, you know, you've got these predominantly white agencies historically, you know, with the individuals making up the rules as they go along based on what was true for the time. So again, you know, Jim Crow segregation didn't end when you walked inside the forest agency. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when you, when you really start to understand that, how that surfaces and plays out today. And when you've got an organization, an environmental organization, most of them, the big ones, whether they're government agencies or they're like the Sierra Club, they're put still, the leadership is predominantly white. It doesn't make them bad, right? Because, you know, there are a lot of good people in these agencies and organizations. But in terms of their experience, their understanding, and their perspective, it makes them limited. And that's me being kind. It makes them limited in terms of what they understand about another group of people who historically, you know, understand things just a little bit differently. And trust isn't there. And trust isn't there. And in a way, that's justified and understandable because trust has not been earned. Carolyn Finney is speaking specifically to the experiences of African-Americans, but I think the trust deficit she's describing has real parallels for both African Nova Scotian and Mi'kmaq communities' experiences locally. What would it look like in our organizations to really prioritize the kind of work that could rebuild that broken trust? Later in this episode, we're going to hear about a study done here in Halifax, Shabukduk, to engage with young African Nova Scotians about how they do and don't feel themselves reflected in the environmental movement here. It includes some recommendations that could really help with some trust building. But first, I need to back up a bit and explain a bit of background around EAC's own imperfect journey to better understand and incorporate environmental justice principles. There was a pivotal moment back in 2008, 10 years ago now. Our outgoing managing director, Maggie Burns, is going to describe how it looked for her. At the time, we were working in Guysboro County um, on issues of the unjust siting of landfills in the African Nova Scotian community of Lincolnville. 
and we'd been partnering on that work for quite a while but we had dedicated a staff person to that work in this period because we had some money to work on an environmental assessment in the area when that funding ran out we uh, notified the coalition of groups that were working on the Lincolnville fight that we couldn't participate in the way that we had because we no longer had a person to, to contribute to that. And much to our surprise, we heard from one of the partner organizations in, a, in an odd way, a kind of unsigned letter saying, Yesi's pulling out from this fight around the Lincolnville landfill is a real example of how you guys are a racist organization. And so for us, ultimately, that became kind of a call to action for the EAC. Although the critique might have been poorly executed and not quite accurate, the truth was environmental organizations and the EAC are white organizations typically, and justice is not enough in the conversation. And there really was a lot of work that we could do on that front. This was an intense moment for EAC. We were publicly called out for our complicity in environmental racism. And this was shortly after one of our earlier forays into working across racial difference. It shook us up, I think. We got defensive, maybe. Anyway, like Maggie is going to explain, this unsigned letter did lead to some reflection and some intentions to change how we do our work. Soon after that, uh, we started what we called the Diversity Committee. and. Um, we had some great people on staff at the time who'd actually done some, some quite significant work in the area. And uh, one of the first things that we did was we tackled a rewrite of the vision and values of the organization. And we added in a component about human diversity and the importance of that. And um, yeah, I can't quite remember how much justice is in that, in that language, but... Um, it was important to us to to start there because we wanted kind of organization-wide buy-in, so something that was relevant or pertinent, touched on the lives of everyone in the organization, volunteers and staff. Um, and so the vision and values is a good place to start, and it's sort of an overarching piece. So that was one of our early activities. And then soon after that, we were lucky enough to get a chunk of funding from Mountain Equipment Co-op, to implement kind of a vision of bringing issues of diversity and inclusion into all aspects of the organization. So it was written as a with the vision that um, there's a con- distributed kind of ownership of this. It wasn't just the directors or the diversity committee members or the board who cared about these issues, but it was like, how do we foster it in many places in the organization. As Maggie notes, we haven't had organization-wide buy-in around these justice questions, and that's been part of the internal work. We'll come back to that later, but back to this diversity committee. I was part of the committee while it lasted, and we did some neat things. But one thing we didn't do was actually improve diversity at EAC. I'm not saying this as a criticism of anyone, but I do think it's important to share this as a piece of our learning. I also talked with Dr. Ingrid Waldron about diversity in hiring last spring. 
She'd been graciously helping EAC's energy team with some advice around writing more inviting job postings, specifically to appeal to African Nova Scotian and Mi'kmaq communities. Ingrid Waldron is a professor in the School of Nursing at Dalhousie and the author of a forthcoming book about environmental racism here in Nova Scotia. What I think has plagued Ecology Action Center in terms of representative hiring is what I think plagues all institutions. As I often say to students in my class, we all wake up with our own lens. And our own lens blinds us to the privileges that we have, making us unable to see in documents, in written documents, or in actions, or in policy decisions, how certain factors, certain issues exclude people. Some people would say that's racist. I suppose it's a subtle form of racist. I perhaps am much more patient. I say that we all have privileges that we cannot see and we come from a particular lens. Uh, and I don't, if you want to call that racist, that's fine. I think we need to, we need to engage in a much more complex discussion on that because each of us does that. I'm able-bodied. I wake up as an able-bodied person every day. I'm not going to pretend that I see through my able-bodied lens all of the disadvantages and oppressions that persons with disabilities have. We all have to be honest with the fact that even if you're a marginalized, racialized person like I am, that I come from a particular dominant lens in terms of my able-bodiedness, making me blind to the realities of, of disabled peoples. I'd also like to share a little bit of a conversation I had with Joanna Bull last year. Joanna Bull is the Events and Volunteer Coordinator at Ecology Action Centre. She's been engaging with questions around justice here over the past few years. We were chatting about the concepts of diversity and inclusion. Yeah, EIC has this diversity statement and it's all about how um, just like in ecosystems, when an ecosystem is more diverse, it's more resilient and stronger organizations are like ecosystems too and the more diverse we are the better we are and the better we can do our work and um, and that's a really nice idea I think that holds true to a certain extent I think that if that actually is the only way we think about diversity then it's pretty selfish in a way it's like oh it makes us better um, and then the idea of inclusion again I think if, in terms of inclusion where it connects to environmental justice for me is like the people who are most affected by environmental issues should also be given or, or should also be involved in finding the solutions and working for the solutions because they have the most knowledge of it um, and also you can't go around solving other people's problems, it's rude. Um, <laughs> You, you know, people need to be included in the solution of their own problem if it's not going to be disempowering. Um, so on that level, it makes sense. But if you go a little layer deeper than that, that's actually a little bit problematic for me because it sort of assumes that we're the ones who are making the solutions and we're going to include somebody in our work. Um, whereas actually, if you look at, you know, the African Nova Scotian community and environmental racism in Nova Scotia, that community has been involved in working for solutions for a really long time and has been struggling and fighting and, you know, for years. Um, and so who are we to be like, oh, we'll include you in our environmental work. Um, you know, it's almost, it almost should be the other way around. Like we should be thinking about 
you know, we want to be included in their environmental work or we want to help, you know, support what they're doing. I really like the way Joanna names the limitations of diversity and inclusion. It's like that lens of whiteness that Ingrid Waldron described. It's let us pat ourselves on the back for our efforts when white supremacy is still tucked right in there. What would it look to reverse that idea of inclusion, to recognize the decades, even centuries of work that African Nova Scotian and Mi'kmaq communities have been putting into resisting environmental racism, and then ask to be included in that work? EAC's energy campaign coordinator, Stephen Thomas, has been working with others to try and get beyond these problematic concepts of diversity and inclusion in his team's work. Here he is. I, I hope it's clear that I'm not an expert in, in HR or in hiring or, or any of this. It's, it's about relationship building for me and, and about doing the work we want. As environmental activists or as environmental organizations who are now striving to do environmental justice work, I think we need to think really carefully about the communities that we're working with and the, the folks that we are accountable to and the folks that we are learning from and supporting. And those communities aren't always very diverse in, when we're looking at the history of the work that, that we've done as environmental organizations. So it's, it's really important that we, um, that we work with different communities and that we hire folks who, who are part of those communities or have a history in those communities or who, who themselves come from those communities. I think diversity in hiring isn't only about hiring uh, indigenous folks or people of color or people from different communities into the work that we're already doing but about, I think, honestly inviting their knowledge and expertise and, and, um, and relationships uh, into our work to change our work. Um, I think there's a big difference between those two things. You know what I mean? I think the folks in environmental organizations have to be willing to change. And I think that's, that's the difference. I mean, that's kind of the big question, isn't it? Are we really honestly inviting knowledge and expertise and relationships across difference into our work? Back in 2013, EAC partnered on a study with Dr. Ingrid Waldron to learn how we might better engage with the historically black community in our neighborhood. The study was called Engaging African Nova Scotian Youth in the North End on Environmental Issues. Here's Ingrid Waldron explaining some of the findings. And um, I mean, there were many findings, of course, but I think the general sense that I got is that African Nova Scotian youth in the North End, but also other marginalized or if you want to say marginalized or vulnerable people have a relationship to the environment that's often articulated or understood in very different ways right so many of them when in discussing the issue with them I found that they were engaged in environmentalism um, but it wasn't presented perhaps in the same way that it's presented in the mainstream Another finding from that study was that they felt disconnected because they saw environmentalism as something that very privileged, highly educated white women were engaged in. So they saw that as something very elite for the highly educated and particularly women. I mean, I didn't even know, white women, I didn't even know that because I, when I started that study, I didn't know, I knew it was seen as white, but I didn't know it was seen as a white woman thing. And now that I go to the EAC, I see it's mostly women. That was shocking to me because I didn't know that, right? I actually often thought it was like a white guy thing, a 21-year-old white guy thing. Mm. Because those were the people who approached me, like when I was in Toronto on the street, to engage in green, what is it, green peace? And those are the people who, who, who engaged me. 
another interesting finding was that I guess one of the recommendations was that given the disconnect that they feel around environmentalism, how can, I guess I was trying to figure out how agencies like the EAC can ground their programs in the realities of these communities. And that was much of the disconnect, that you've got agencies over here and you've got communities over here, and the, commu and the agencies are trying to figure out how to connect to the communities, mm -hmm. but not understanding that in order to connect them to environmentalism, they had to actually go into the communities to get a sense of how those communities perceived environmentalism, um, um, wanted to engage with it, and then to create programs that were grounded and rooted in community perspectives. White woman right here, <laughs> it's true. We're everywhere in the mainstream environmental movement and everywhere at EAC. Dr. Waldron's study had some really clear recommendations for us, including the basic idea of leaving our bubble to spend time with African Nova Scotian communities, especially the one in our own neighborhood, and to engage by listening and learning about their own relationships with the environment and then to really hear and respond to what they share. From there, the report noted we could build the kinds of relationships and programs that, quote, challenge the social construction of environmentalism as the domain of primarily elite and privileged white people. I think that this is advice that we could bear to hear again and again in our movement. Soon afterwards, EAC decided to take on environmental justice as one of our three cross-cutting themes, along with climate change and biodiversity. These themes are meant to guide our work across the various action teams and are a reminder of the intersecting nature of the crisis we're all facing. Naming environmental justice as a theme is meant, I think, as a recognition of some of the pieces of work we do already. It's also a little bit aspirational, a sort of reminder of an intention we have, maybe as a way of working to shift our culture. Or, you know, to even get on the same page about what environmental justice really means for us. I want to share one more snippet of my conversation with Maggie Burns. Here she is reflecting back on how some of the messiness of this work felt for her. For me it's been difficult because I've put, I think, a lot of my leadership time and thinking into it. So I've put time into it and yet, you know, I can't really point to some extraordinary transformative success despite, you know, maybe eight or nine or ten years of working on this with some degree of commitment. I also think anything that's about justice and privilege and race and class is so fractious. And, you know, one of the other leadership roles that I play is keeping the organization glued together. So there's a bit of a contradiction in those two roles, it's like we want everybody to feel like they're all on the same team, but these issues don't really move forward unless you uncover our, some of the differences in our thinking in a way that people can see where each other are coming from. And so that has been hard. So um, it's, the EAC is an extremely progressive organization, uh, socially progressive, I, and I think there's very, in the big sense, very little pushback. But nevertheless, there's a spectrum of opinions. And so in that spectrum, there's people that are like, this is less important. 
than something else that I think is really crucial to our work. There are people that say, well, this is too big an issue for the EAC to tackle. Focus on your environmental issues and leave the social justice work um, to the side. So there, you know, there's a plenty of um, challenging conversations there. And then there's other, you know, to to be fair, there's also kudos for taking this on. Uh, community members saying, you guys aren't legit, like you're taking this on, but you're not really taking it on enough. So there's a real pull um, sort of to both sides of the, we should be doing this, we shouldn't be doing this, we're doing this well, we're not doing it well enough. So that, that I think, is really hard. Mm-hmm. And there is also old story, like, what do you do when you're a mostly white organization and you're talking about issues of race and justice and how do you not get so caught up in your own how do I have any legitimacy in this? Do I really understand? Where do I start? Or as someone pointed out, exoticization of the issue, like not just moving on, moving in, doing it, but like really kind of overthinking and and um, maybe getting caught up in yeah, and the emotions and challenges of, of what it's like for us uh, as people with a lot of privilege classically in the environmental world, you know, middle class, white, educated people would be the kind of historical norm. So, I mean, again, there's a lot to kind of chew on in there. There could be a whole season of Shades of Green just unpacking the many ways that ENGOs are resisting or not yet understanding how to engage meaningfully in environmental justice. So far, we've talked about white saviorism and tokenism. And as that hallway montage and Maggie's explanation has helped illustrate, just the general inability to get on the same page and fully see the way that our privileges shape our view of what is and isn't environmental work. Another uncomfortable thing that Maggie is surfacing here is a thing that I think we need to name as part of what happens in organizations like ours as we fumble towards engagement around themes of justice. It's called white fragility. EAC had a staff and board retreat to explore what environmental justice might mean for us as a cross-cutting theme back in 2015. We invited lifelong African Nova Scotian activist Lynn Jones to speak to us. She chose to lay out the concept of white fragility. She gently encouraged us to find a way to embrace the discomfort that is part of working through these issues. Last summer, I asked her about why she focused on white fragility as a suggested starting point. I was at an event at St. Mary's University, and um, I thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is a, I, I understand this concept, and it makes sense, and it's this whole idea that... Um, uh, white people have this need to be protected and insulated from um, any kind of racial stress, and that if in in being protected from this stress, they expect if they're going to be talking about race, that they're going to have comfort. They don't want to be upset, and so as long as you keep the conversation, they don't mind a little tweak here and there. But don't don't take them out their out of their comfort zone, because it's quite intolerable for them to have any kind of stress in this area. And so once you talk about uh, anti-racism and the work that needs to be done, this stress level comes. And so when white 
white people get this stress, then they have to put up their defense mechanisms. And I really like that aspect because I've seen those defense mechanisms in display so often, and that's where they get fearful. They don't they don't want to be there. They they'll talk about I need a safe environment, which is another word for don't talk about race, don't blame me, don't do whatever. But it has other words like we need a safe environment. If I don't have a safe environment, then I need to leave. So that's this whole concept of uh, withdrawal. They'll leave. So the goal of uh, any discussion on around race becomes to make white people um, comfortable. Because when they're comfortable, they can continue to um, institute their privilege within the system. So I, I thought, oh, yes, I love this. This is white fragility. biggest things I remember learning from that retreat was the way that talking about race was making me feel a little bit fragile too like while she was talking about white fragility with us I think I was kind of resistant to the idea of exploring my own relationship with whiteness and to bringing questions around my identity from the personal realm into my work world my chats with Barbara Lowe have really helped me gain a little perspective about where some of my white fragility comes from white fragility relates to in this individualism because you know indigenous people will say something about well you know settlers are you know benefiting from the genocide against us and you'll get you know an individual settler who thinks that they're a really good person will be like but no i'm a i'm a good person like not me um and it's about them it becomes about them and their personal you know because they don't understand it as a system Mm -hmm. right it's they take it personally instead of taking it collectively, right? right? But they're unable to do that because the individual supersedes the collective in this culture. And also um, people seem to, you know, if I'm not doing something bad, then that's enough, right? Like, and it's just like, and and sometimes I clarify this by talking about, say, violence against women, for instance. You'll start to talk about that. You'll always have a man jump in and say, I have never hit a woman in my life. So don't say all men, right? And it's like, Okay, that's really, really great that you've never hit, hit a woman in your life, but the violence is still happening. So clearly, your being a good guy is not enough. Again, it's, this is operating, it's all operating from guilt rather than responsibility. And that's why guilt is a really ugly human emotion. When people feel guilty, they get nasty um, because it's such an uncomfortable feeling, right? Um, so there's a lashing out, there's a defensiveness that happens. And People want things to be easy. Like, you know, my colonialism makes one hell of a mess. And settlers in particular, they don't want to feel guilty. They want things to be nice. They want everything to be good and rosy, right? But they want it to be easy and quick. And we're talking about generational stuff here that's gone on for 500 years that is not going to change because one person is nice. And there needs to be an understanding of the systemic nature of colonialism and how everyone is caught up in it. It's so true. Like I still have to remind myself that being nice is not enough. 
Because as a white person, I didn't grow up with an immediate sense of how wrapped up we all are in these systems of oppression, how interconnected it all is. My colleague Joanna Bull and I talk about this feeling a lot, the fumbling that comes from being earnest, but still unsure of our roles and working towards environmental justice here in Mi'kma'ki. Like, we don't actually even see what we're being asked to do yet. I don't think. We being the environmental movement. I don't think we fully understand um, what is seen as problematic about the way we are now and what is problematic about the way we are now. Um, and I think that a lot of those things that are problematic are really deeply entrenched with the structure of, of how we exist. So, so this is a bit of an example of the, the Peace and Friendship Alliance, um, which is an initiative that started um, out of the Wallace Grand Council in New Brunswick and was with the aim of bringing together Indigenous and non-Indigenous people to um, build stronger relationships in order to work for protecting the land and the water and the environment. Um, and in the process, I think, decolonizing those relationships. Um, and then it came to Nova Scotia, and uh, I sort of eagerly, I got really excited about it. And I thought, well, I can help. Um, I, you know, I can help, like, type up the minutes, or, 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 like, I can help, like, organize the agenda, or do the, you know, the sort of mini stuff, right? Like, little things. Like, pretty quickly, that group sort of, it, like, the, the vibe really went south, and, um, it was clear that a lot of people had different expectations of what the group was and there was some conflict and it all kind of boiled over and there was this feeling that came from some of the people in the group that, oh, the Ecology Action Center is coming in with its ideas about what we should be doing, but really we're the communities and, um, and who, who are these people from the city telling us how it ought to go. Um, and that was really challenging for me because... Uh, I guess I didn't really see the way that um, doing so-called little things like helping to send out the agenda and, and organizing the contact list are actually like power positions and were seen as such. And, and so for me, like it's hard because I, you know, I see a group and I'm like, well, it could be so much better if it was like this and it could be organized and it could be clear and, and, and this would work. And, but that's, you know, my way of working and the, the NGO way of working or whatever is not actually the only valid way of working. Um, and as a matter of fact, I don't think that that was like the main cause of conflict, but it definitely didn't help. It's, uh, and I think that, you know, my experience of that, like I'm, I'm sort of this, I'm a natural born leader type, like I tend to step in and take control and take leadership because I have great ideas and I think I know how things ought to go. And I think maybe that's a little bit symbolic of ENGOs too, that like we think that we know the right way to do it. Um, and so we'll go in and, and say, well, 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 we should do it this way, obviously. And, but that actually might be alienating um, to people and they may or may not let us know that. I don't know if there's something sort of metaphorical about that experience that maybe reflects on on the ENGO experience trying to do ally work is that we have a certain way of working and it doesn't necessarily jive with the way that communities want to work. And that, that's just like, even in practical terms, that's something I don't think we've figured out yet is like, what actually is our role? Like I haven't figured out what my role is personally. And I don't think the EAC has figured out what our role is in that wider landscape. 
I really love that Joanna chose to share this story with all of its honesty and self-awareness because I've been part of these vulnerable processes too. And also it's hard to find white folks in the environmental movement who want to talk about this very real part of justice work. The part that involves putting ourselves out there in uncomfortable ways so that we can learn about the decolonizing work that we still have to do. I'm going to bring Stephen Thomas back into the conversation here because he kind of sums up what can be difficult about all of this. As organizations who every day advocate for change and ask and demand and picket and, and protest for change and for change that we see as radical, um, I think we have a really hard time changing ourselves. Um, and I think, I think that's the biggest barrier, is that we have still a very entrenched or, or old um, idea of how change happens and what it looks like for change to happen. And it, I think it's necessary that that view changes and that we change in the way that we do our work. And changing the world uh, sometimes means changing ourselves too. And I think necessarily means changing ourselves too. I mean, Stephen really put it in a nutshell, hey? As environmental activists, we spend so much of our time projecting outwards, honing our tactics and strategies, fighting the bad guys. We're going to wrap up in a minute, but first I want to bring in Carolyn Finney one more time. She builds on what Stephen is saying about the uncomfortable and necessary piece of this work that involves looking inwards, and the kind of courage it requires to then bring this new awareness into our more collective work. This idea that now if we say the right words, diversity, inclusion, you know, blah, 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 blah. I know I'm being a little like that, but, you know, we'll get to where we need to go. And actually, I would say, you know, no, you won't really, because for me, real diversity, I actually prefer to say difference, is understanding how we are in relationship with each other across difference, which means there's a lot of self-examination that has to happen for the individual, for the organization, or the institution, the agency engaged with it, to get real about your own set of assumptions, biases, prejudices, um, to really examine power and privilege and understand that maybe the structure and the way within which um, an organization or an entity attends to a, a quote-unquote a problem isn't working. It's not just the, what the problem, it's not just about defining the problem. So if you're looking at something and saying, okay, diversity, we need more diversity. How do we take care of diversity? It's not just going out and outreaching or getting people. It's not going to attend fully to the problem because actually you're still doing everything else the same. There's been no shift in sort of the basic structure and practice. And maybe what we need is to be asking different questions. Maybe what we need to do is restructuring the way we are in relationship to each other across difference. And that is a lot more work. It's a lot more work. What I have a lot of compassion for is that people are daunted, like, what does that mean? Does that mean that we have to just change everything we're doing? It might mean that, actually. Gradually, you know, uh, over time. But yeah, it might mean that. It might mean that what your leadership looks like is different. If you have some kind of hierarchical model of leadership, top down, that's not working. <laughs> so you may have to relearn. And it may be that you're not the best person to serve in that position. Whoa, that's a big one. So what does that mean? Right? So it's these kinds of really hard questions 
that have, for me have to be asked. I mean, if we really, really, really want emergence of something new, then we really, really, really have to be willing to take big risks in order to gain at something different. Organizations will set out a series of goals, right? You know, they get funding for it. They have a series of goals. Um, and the goal might be, let's increase the leadership in our organization so that we get more folks of color. Let's just say that's what the goal is. And that's an admirable goal. I mean, I understand that. Um, but what if the goal instead was to revision who we are, how we're going to be, coming up with a new mission statement, even the goal was to restructure how we show up in relationship. You know, before you start reaching out to people to be on your leadership board, you know, how, how would I trust you? Like, what work have you done? Like, are, are we in relationship with each other? Do you know who I am? I love what Carolyn Finney says about the difference between making a commitment towards something called diversity and the deeper work of building reciprocal relationships across difference. She doesn't sugarcoat it for us. It's work. But she has compassion for the courage it will take to build something that we've literally never seen before in our movements. It also reminds me of what Carolyn brought up earlier, the idea that when it comes to these relationships, trust has to be earned. And like we've heard today in so many ways, the responsibility to build this trust is on white folks and on the environmental movement which carries a legacy of extractive relationships and continues to be driven by the lens and privileges of whiteness. Something I've been hearing from most folks who've been generous enough to pass along their advice to our environmental movement is that this trust building begins with something really simple. It begins with listening. As Barbara Lowe says, it's about really, really listening and then actually taking what we hear on board. More and more, I'm starting to feel like this work of being open to listening, learning, and being accountable, and then allowing all of that to change how we relate across difference is what is at the heart of the peace and friendship treaties that we're all a party to here in Mi'kma'ki. Peace and friendship. And while that path is by no means straightforward, it might be the only sensible way to undo the oppressive systems that are harming our environment and our communities. So can we make space to really listen to others? and allow ourselves to be open to both the changes and to the healing that it offers us, both individually and as part of our movements? And can we trust that this work will lead us where we need to go, into a more just future? I hope you'll tune into our next episode. We're going to work to decolonize our imaginations a little, take a look into some possible futures that we hope this kind of work we're talking about here can help us get to for our future generations here in Mi'kma'ki and beyond. Thanks to all of the incredible voices shared in this episode and to everyone guiding me behind the scenes. Some of these folks include Joanna Brenchley, Joanna Bull, Maggie Burns, Erica Butler, Ariel Deranger, Dr. Carolyn Finney, Jen Graham, Randolph Haluza delay Lynn Jones, Barbara Lowe, Stephen Thomas, and Dr. Ingrid Waldron. I also want to shout out social justice facilitator, healer, and doula, Adrian Marie Brown. A special thanks to everyone at Ecology Action Center for supporting me in asking these juicy questions and to the Community Conservation Research Network. Further thanks to Nick Dorado for composing our theme music and to Ansley Simpson for the song that you're going to hear in the outro, A Mixture of Frailties.
Play. Will you 
so I can feel.